everybody and welcome to another episode of true talk the place where conversation becomes communication i'm your host brandon joel and thank you for tuning in for another communication intervention this week we are going to have part two of the state of dialogue with charles kim stay tuned and let us know your thoughts so what are the problems you think are associated with why we kind of struggle with you know, dialogue and just basic conversations with other people? Well, the U.S., I feel like, is the most uniquely positioned in the world in this in this regard, right? Because what a lot of people like to say is a melting pot is really more of a stew. You know, you have a bunch of different chunks that are swimming in this common broth of like American idealism, right? And these different chunks are different communities uh, within each other. So like you have just like very, very briefly off the top of my head, you have Koreatown, Chinatown, for instance, right? You have ethnic enclaves all across the U.S. because the U.S. is the, the melting pot of culture. It, it becomes that much harder to connect with your fellow man or just person when that fellow person comes from an entirely different background than you. Right. And uh, it's, it's actually paradoxical in a sense, because these, these people coming from entirely different backgrounds, it's both extremely hard to connect with them, but also extremely easy to connect with them. Because you see anecdotally, just like stories all across the US about these neighbors from different uh, ethnicities and different communities bonding together over something as simple as like helping their neighbor shovel a driveway, right? And it's just that easy, uh, like forming a like neighborhood uh, block community where it's like, oh, like our neighborhood is having a block party. Let's all get together and like get to know one another, right? And it's just that simple. On the other hand, it becomes that much more difficult when you have again, as previously mentioned, right, the, the bias in the media being towards sensationalism and conflict, and part of that also being fear-mongering, right? So things like the 9-11 attacks and uh, the resulting uh, news pieces after that, like making people fearful of Muslims in America, just as a quick example. But you know what that kind of shows me? It shows me that we have the capacity to understand someone from a completely different culture and background in an instant, just because we live in the same country. Like we have the capacity to do it. I had the option or the, uh, the privilege of going to a high school and a college and universities where I've got to meet people from vastly different walks of life. I had roommates at one point that were from Beijing, China, and it was like, I wouldn't think that there'd be that much of a cultural difference living together, but there was, you know, and those are some of the things that I'm just so grateful for because trying to overcome these things that could be potential barriers to conversations and to dialogue, those are things that 
if you don't give meaning to them or attention to it, especially with how it is often scripted and given to us, once we kind of release ourselves of that, we can not assign meaning or significance to things that could be perceived as barriers or different, but instead we can use that as incentive to dig in deeper as to why this person is able to communicate getting someone to a table, that's already like a win. So you got someone there, let's try to do something with that now, you know? And I feel that is something that is not that hard or far off for people to do or to achieve. We need to be considerate of the fact that uh, for lots of people, and especially now, uh, post panoramic or not even post panoramic with this ongoing pandemic, um, how uncomfortable, there we go, how uncomfortable it can be for some people to just take that step to be open to another person's experiences. Yes. Uh, because for fear sure. of the, right. And fear of the unknown is a very real thing. So, uh, the encouragement here being like, be, uh, take those steps to try and be more open to another person's experiences, like literally doing your homework on another person, you know, where it's like, oh, yes. this person has, I, I see from afar that this person has like these kinds of views or uh, these kinds of uh, experiences in their past or these kinds of like cultural markers, right? It's like, then doing your background research on like, oh, like what do those views entail? What do those cultural aspects entail? Before like when you finally come to the table together, as you were mentioning, you then at least have some kind of foundation to be more open to their experiences as like where you just simply ask them how they got to where they are. And I think that's just like a fundamental question that you can ask anybody. It's like, how are you here now? You know? And, and it allows you to use listening as a tool to help guide you through that process. Like, are you really hearing them? Are you giving them an opportunity to present their worldview as themselves rather than how you've assumed they've engaged with the world? Like, that's also very important too. You can't assume that people will engage or perceive the world in the way that you've been told or taught. You know, when I went out into the world on my own, I was like, wait, you don't behave in the way that my mom said, or wait, like my family say, your people are like this. No, like you have to give people an opportunity to present themselves. And in that process of letting people present themselves, that's where you learn. That's where you get the little negative information that wasn't on CNN, that wasn't on Fox News. It was the opportunity for them to give you something that was significant to them and them sharing that valuable nugget into what makes them them. That is where we can really start to appreciate and want to move forward together with how we can take our different ways of communicating and being and bring them together to do something in our shared environment. And I actually want to quickly shout out uh, Humans of New York. Uh, for people who don't know, uh, Humans of New York is uh, now it can be considered like an organization pretty much, but it started as like this photojournalistic project by this man named Brandon Stanton, where he uh, went around interviewing uh, New Yorkers that he would just find on the street, um, like people walking in New York that he would just find on the street. And he would take their photograph and post their uh, essentially like life story in a lot of cases um, in the description of the photo. And the reason why I wanted to shout him out is because uh, 
in another way that we can quote unquote bridge this divide is simply finding commonalities between like common aspirations, fears, dreams that we have with each other, where it's like, oh, what's uh, he, he had this like talk where he uh, basically detailed the questions that he asks these strangers that he goes up to, to try and form a connection. And these are questions that basically amount to uh, things like, what are you fearful of right now? Or what are you looking forward to in this moment? Or what's something that you've wanted to do for a long time? Like things that don't necessarily force someone to become super personal, but allows for an avenue of them to share some part of themselves that you can potentially bond together with. Yeah, let people open up and share things at their own pace. I've had to learn that because I... I do love listening. I love getting to know people. And I'm like, I want to know it all. And it's like, sometimes people aren't ready to share. And like, that's okay. Like you have to respect where people are at. And the fact that they're still at the table, I'm like, okay, like that's at least a good sign or good stuff. Hopefully today, like we can give you all some awareness of how to look for dialogue and like, where is dialogue around you? How are you engaging with it now? And then how we're going to be able to use that to always guide our conversations to something that can actually have a tangible or an, an impact. Going to your notion of having these productive conversations, right? A lot of that, there's, the, there's a huge roadblock there which is that polarization that we were talking about earlier, right? And, and to connect this to the social media algorithms and the echo chambers, right? You end up having these individuals who don't have a community, right? Who don't have an, a network of friends, family, et cetera, that they can rely on. And now that we're in this new digital age, you are you now have the capacity to go on certain forums, uh, go, go to certain profiles on these, so, on these social media uh, sites, right? And a lot of people end up finding uh, a community that makes them feel welcome, that makes them feel heard, that makes them feel seen. The problem being, these are message boards, these are they profiles that have, <laughs> that have extreme views in a lot of cases, right? And in some cases, it might not even be that they have extreme views on the outset. It's that they'll tease you with like a moderate view that every that everyone can agree with, such as like, oh, I believe mainstream media is not covering all the stories. And it's like, oh yeah, I agree with that. And then you follow down that rabbit hole to be to then become radicalized in this notion of like everything's a conspiracy, right? It's it's very easy to fall into that trap. And this goes not just for like what a lot of people like to attribute as like uh, a conservative problem, although uh, they, there are like aspects of like uh, the conservative media ecosphere that is also problematic, right? This is a problem that anybody can fall into precisely because there is no structural deterrent to go against this notion of uh, algorithmic spiral, right? Like the algorithm exacerbates pre-existing views to the point that it does not introduce you to outside sources. I think it's really interesting that you bring up algorithms because the algorithms have been the way for us to kind of code what we do wrong in our real social hierarchy and in life. And that's really scary, but I feel the reason why algorithms are so effective 
at being a divisive tool is because it injects apathy and it removes empathy because there is literally a barrier, or as you were saying earlier, there's this other platform that your message, your intentions, your feelings has to go through before it gets to the other person. And that platform has spent millions of dollars to, from the moment you open that app or you engage on that platform, they want you to have specific types of experience. So even if I'm like, Charles, like you're such a great friend, it's going to be influenced in some type of way by that platform that I'm sending it to you through. And that is a problem. You're losing, you're losing that barrier. You know, you're losing that extra umph that that needs for it to be meaningful, you know, not only just like conversation, but dialogue, like you need empathy. You need to be able to, even if you don't agree, okay, I've had an experience where I could probably see where you're coming from. Like we have to bring ourselves and allow other people to bring their experiences to the table in order for us to really be able to, going back to what I was saying earlier, listening. You know, it gives us that tool to really actually try to understand each other. You need that empathy in order to give all of this the juice. You know, and like, I hate that we're becoming more apathetic because we can see literally anything on Instagram or Facebook in like a matter of minutes. You can see a rally, you can see a war, you can see that's a lot for the brain to try to process all the time on top of your own life and then figuring your own self out. So, oh, that that notion of apathy, that notion of listening, listening in itself has become a monumental effort precisely because of these <laughs> social media echo chambers that we find ourselves in, right? Like Ooh. how in the world can you listen to someone outside of your pre-existing biases when you, there's no real way for their voice to get through to you? You know what I mean? Like mm -hmm. the, the uh, and, and so I really want to touch upon this point of, uh, like fin like financial stability and and wealth, but but also uh, just this notion that like there's an unshakable role of like financial stability and wealth that that directly impacts our ability to be proper participants in the general discourse, right? Like you not having enough uh, money to like send to to participate in things like a, a good school or like extracurricular activities, like these are all things that cost money and outside of that when we're going back to this notion of like uh social media there was there was something that i wanted to ooh um yes you were talking about like how these algorithms are taking away apathy when we really need empathy right the there's there's so much to to unpack there but but very simply put just for the sake of this conversation we have to also understand that like the news is the news, at least in America, right? Like the mainstream media news uh, and just generally news that we, that we see, thanks to this profit motive, there is as a result, a bias towards sensationalism and conflict, right? Because social media, as well as like this information ecosystem has made even more pronounced the commodity of our attention, our attention as a commodity, right? And so how do you attract someone's attention and not just attract it, but also uh, retain it? Is it by uh, showing a peaceful walk in the neighborhood? Not really. It's by showing how this 
community is under threat and how uh, people are going to war and how these murders happened like directly in your uh, backyard and like fear mongering and uh, sensationalizing incidents to uh, ensure that people click on these headlines. Like clickbait in itself is a term that arose in the past, in, in like the recent years, precisely because of how that kind of model was profitable, right? Like by sensationalizing and by obfuscating the truth, you were able to attain more viewers, more listeners. And uh, that goes back to the notion of profit motive where the, all of that was justified because even if it wasn't healthy for the long-term of the discourse or even for the short-term of the discourse, it was justified because it earned more uh, for the companies. <laughs> Now, I think we keep bringing up, you know, these profit motive organizations frequently because going back to what I was mentioning earlier, like we have been hacked, you know, our fundamental way of communicating with each other has been hacked by this outside actor, by this outside force. Like, you know, don't, don't quote me on this, but I just feel like that's very, very new. You know, you didn't have like, you could always cut the TV off. You could always like cut the, the like news letter off. You didn't have to engage. But like right now it kind of feels like we're have to engage with these people that don't necessarily have our best interests at heart. And yeah, that is, that is so correct. And when you look at, and, and like, it's my personal opinion that like history should be like a, more history should have more devoted resources to it in terms of our education so that we can Ooh. understand more. Don't even get me started on historical production. <laughs> yeah. uh, and that's like a really brief aside. Um, but I'm so glad that you mentioned that because that's exactly right. We did used to be able to turn off the TV to be able to engage in so many other different ways. Like think about very simply put the source for our news, like where the general American populace attained their news and their information. It used to be just a few national news stations and your local news stations. And uh, that's how figures like Walter Cronkite uh, came to prominence where uh, you had these few trusted uh, figures of authority, these few trusted news media organizations uh, that everyone tuned into and listened to. And so if we're going back to that notion of a common adherence to truth and everyone coming to the table in good faith, there was that common trust there because there was also this common notion of, oh, everyone is essentially getting their news from a similar place, from one of these few news stations. And now with the explosion of like the internet and like mainstream media and all and the attention as a commodity, you have all these disparate branching off news organizations, news uh, talking points, like all of these new lenses and filters for the events of our world to be uh, essentially interpreted by. And I think that interpretation, that is the mechanism of how they've been able to hack, you know, our way of communicating and hacking this process. Your ability to interpret, that is how you derive meaning from things. And if we have kind of handed that over to this outside actor, like we've already kind of missed the point. And it also kind of reveals that 
in that scenario, if someone's controlling our interpretation, you're a captive audience. You know, you're not a person that can just actually receive the message and the intent. Like it has now been influenced by some sort of like noise. And going back to what you were saying before about the commodity of our attention, that is a very key point to help us to understand where the state of dialogue is. Not only are our ability to interpret the world around us being influenced. It's like also where we put our attention to is also being hacked. And where your attention goes is how you start to get stimuli and information for your brain to understand the world around you. And if someone's controlling where that attention's going, they're essentially controlling how you are developing because attention is how your brain is able to capture something new to get different stimuli. It's a very essential function for yourself. And so once we kind of lose that ability, it it really becomes scary when it comes to dialogue because now not only do we have to factor in what's happening at the table, we have to factor in what happens before you even get to the table. Like, all right, what path did you get here? Who influenced you before you even got here? And if I don't have some sort of awareness of that, I'm really not going to be able to effectively engage and communicate with you in this situation. Because if you don't have that awareness, like that's really hard for the other person trying to work with you because you might, they might be wanting to work with you, but they may not be un, they may not be aware that they are also tacitly fighting something that's been kind of implanted there. So that's why that self-reflection is so important because it allows you to try to have some sort of awareness of how you think, how you perceive the world. And if you can kind of get into that practice, then you can start to see how do I make meaning of the world? How do I interpret the world and not letting something else have that um, influence? The reason why they've been able to kind of get themselves in there by our interpretation or by infecting our ability to interpret the world is because we got lazy. And here's what I mean by being lazy. Like they are capitalizing off of the convenience of communicating. You know what I'm saying? Like we didn't, you know, force ourselves to go get other ways of connecting. Like we just relied on it. We stopped moving. You know, we got comfortable. We talked about this earlier in the podcast, this idea of like, all right, humans are supposed to move. We're supposed to adapt. We're supposed to change. And if we have just gotten convenient at our fundamental tool for existing with each other, like we have given away our ability to really experience what it means to be human. I am so glad. And I keep saying that I'm so glad that you mentioned these things, (laughs) but that's just the nature of how our conversations go. The the laziness aspect, the hacking aspect, and uh, the 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 background before we come to the table, all those aspects are all interconnected. Uh, and I want to really hammer home this very important point here, which is how literacy is a huge factor in how we succumb to mm. social media and the general news mm. ecosystem's ability to construct our worldviews, wow. right? Because not only is literacy one of the primary ways, like just, just simply by reading more, right? That's one of the primary ways that we enhance our own ability to critically think. That's how we uh, are able to enhance our own abilities to discern truth from falsehood, right? The 
uh, U.S. Department of Education in 2019 found that 54% of U.S. adults or U.S. adults age 16 to 74 read below the equivalent of a sixth grade reading level, right? That That's is so more crazy. than half. And, and going back to your notion of how all of this is connected, right? Like laziness and complacency, how it, it, it's so easy to connect that in terms of how easy it is for people to process new information when they are not able to read beyond a sixth grade level, right? Yeah. Like these, these are current events, like the democratization of the news, right? The, the, the democratization that like social media and the internet has provided us, right? Is a great boon without a doubt. But also think about the fact that, or excuse me, let me rephrase, not a great boon without a doubt. There are several great benefits that have come from the democratization of the news through platforms like the internet and social media and the like, right? But think about the fact that these are also events in the world that have decades of history behind them, that have all these different factors and uh theories and socioeconomic like policies and things that you need a fundamental level of education to properly understand before you even go about speaking about it right and the ways that we are able to access process and retain new information that comes through being able to read <laughs> being able that's, to that's real being able to actually like look at a text on a page and process what that information is being told to you. And this actually directly relates to the next point uh, that comes from uh, like literacy being like a connective factor, right? Um, critical thinking and the ability to like uh, comprehend new information. These are all intellectual structures, right? Like these are right. all structures within your intellect that you're able to use to navigate your world, right? And like citing the previous statistic of 54% of US adults not reading beyond the sixth grade level, it goes to show that a lot, like pretty much most of most Americans do not have strong intellectual structures with which to process new information. So how do these people cope? Because the, the information is out there. So then you see this reliance on social media and news media through things like video, right? Through things like news reports that show like video footage of what's going on with a, with a talking narrative uh, background. And we also have to fully uh, understand and appreciate how video is by far the most malleable and propagandistic medium, right? You have so many factors that can influence how you end up perceiving the information being given to you through video. You have the camera angle, you have the, the edits and the cuts that someone uh, puts in, right? You have the backing soundtrack that makes you feel certain emotions. And so I, I just wanted to make sure that like we uh, understand that because when you're not able to read properly, when you, when you don't have that skill set, you end up relying on these other means to obtain your information. Well, Charles, like, I feel like you gave us a really good way of kind of roping everything that we've talked about together. And for me, the reason why Charles is stressing these things like profit, you know, motive organizations and literacy 
Because as I was alluding to earlier, we have to also be aware that we need to start being conscious of what people have to go through in order to get to the table and trying to like understand where they come from in order for us to have a more robust conversation. And the reason why we wanted to bring awareness of all of these different processes and steps towards getting towards some sort of solution is to try to help give you all some awareness. Now, I feel that we've had a very good conversation about dialogue and like where we're at. I think we get it. It's been hacked. You know, people aren't aware of the change that we've made recently on us kind of regressing with what we are, you know, as humans, social creatures. But I want us to get into what we can do, not only individually, but how can people listening, you know, start to practice awareness of dialogue and start to practice you know, identifying or being aware of some of these concepts that we've talked about, talked about today. So, you know, from your perspective, what can people be doing now? You know, now that we've made them aware, like, what could we be doing? You know, like, what's important? What are some of our next steps? Fundamentally, the value of increased dialogue and conversation comes from being forced to confront your own beliefs, right? Ooh. And having to articulate and reaffirm what it is you actually believe and understand, right? Like it's it's similar to how like a lot of times the most effective way of learning information is by teaching someone what you're trying to learn, right? Mm. And going going to this notion of like why people are so wrapped up in their own biases beyond like the profit motives undergirding like the uh the social media actors right and the and the algorithms leading to these echo chambers we see that like when people are wrapped up in their own biases it's largely because they there's there's a strong sense of loneliness there's a there's a lacking sense of community right and in terms of what we can do fundamentally it's like there's there's notions of admitting your mistakes, being willing to accept when you're wrong, and all of these which take effort and humility, but mm. in a more fundamental aspect is this notion of community building, right? Be like creating, being these space creators that allow people to come together and, and talk and discuss different aspects of the news, for instance, uh, and different aspects of their own identity, right? And here's what's so, why this seems so like hopeless, uh, but also just as a, as a reminder that like apathy is the true ways in which all these like corporate entities, like apathy is the ways in which activism dies, right? Like apathy is the ways in which the, the problems in our world continue on, right? The the whole the whole reason why like dialogue and conversation is so important especially now is because of how difficult it has become right mm -hmm. like the the precise difficulty that has been established now by all these outside influ like influences and actors makes it so that being able to connect with your fellow human being has become that much more important and as for the different strategies and different ways in which we can do that. I, I think a larger, more important point to make is as like the Reverend Dartinger, Martin Luther King Jr. said, right? The, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. So irregardless of whether you have like a specific uh, method to connect with your fellow person, 
uh, I, I just want to stress the importance of having that as a goal, right? Like having that goal of fostering dialogue, of fostering that conversation with your fellow person. Now, I think that's so good. And bringing it back to the self from my perspective, I definitely feel like this is where I feel the most convicted to like speak. And that is some of the things that I was bringing up earlier. I recognize and I acknowledge that, you know, we've laid a very heavy conversation on you. And like, I encourage you to take notes and, you know, talk to other people about things that may have come up for you. But I also really want you to take away just a few things, you know, let's simplify some of it. I think you can start this journey with us by having just a little bit more self-awareness, you know, how can I understand myself before I start to engage in this act called communication? You know, how can you work on being a good faith actor? How can you listen better? How can you be a person again? You know, what does it mean to be a person for you? What does it mean to be a person in an environment? Are the people like you? Like, I want to encourage you to just start paying closer attention, start listening again, and to be present. To be present is to give yourself an opportunity to really engage and to immerse yourself in some sort of shared experience. And if you're wondering, how will I know if I've achieved communication? Was it just a conversation? I think one of the quickest things that you can do is ask yourself, did I walk away with something? Did I learn something? Do I feel like I have a good idea or concept of what they're going for? Or maybe asking yourself why? You know, I feel a question that is so simple and it's always immediately available to us that we often overlook is why? You know, why do I feel this way? Why are they communicating in this way? And, you know, even though we have dialogue and even though we have communication, understanding yourself, understanding other people and trying to be present and trying to be a person is going to be how we are going to start this process and this journey, not only for understanding and communicating with each other, but using that communication as the foundation for a society that includes all of us, that has understanding and space for everything that we have to offer living in this society. And although things have changed. And although we've identified that, hey, we've been hacked. Hey, I'm not trying to scare you. I'm not trying to sensationalize you. I'm trying to encourage you to be aware and to do something about it. Start another conversation. Go be a part of educating yourself and being active in what we are trying to present to you today. Just some quick final thoughts that you actually turned me on to is the notion of some concrete things that you can do uh, that I just now thought of in terms of like, oh, maybe you can re-examine your own personal biases, right? And how, how do you do that? By uh, taking a look at where do, you, where do you get your news from? Where do you get your information from? Is social media your primary outlet? If it's social media, what profiles are you following? What accounts are you following? Uh, look into reputable news sources. Um, my go-tos are the Associated Press, Reuters, and uh, ProPublica for their investigative investigative journalism. The New York Times as well. Um, and that's just that's just a start, right? There's also the next aspect, which is fact checking, right? Like how when you come across these like 
sensationalized stories on social media, it's like, let's take a second to truly verify whether those social media stories are actually telling the full story before right. you get your emotions riled up. Uh, and so uh, organizations and websites like PolitiFact and Snopes do a, a lot of work to really dig down into like the sources of different uh, internet trends, for instance. And just like the final thing that I wanted to mention as kind of like a cap to all this is, again, like apathy and dejection are how the system is upheld and aspiration for a better world and future as well as aspiration for uh, a better community and uh, neighbor are what fundamentally cause change. That is a really good wrap up. And I'm happy that you kind of brought up some of those final points. And, you know, one of the big takeaways too, that I feel like we discovered during this podcast is we have uncovered that how we interpret the world and our meaning making system, you know, that's been influenced by people that we may not be aware of. And I really want to encourage you when we're talking about the state of dialogue, the reason why we're focusing on dialogue is because that is the exchange that allows us to go from conversation to communication because we are trying to come to the table with our own types of understanding. And so I really want to encourage you all to take a second to just reflect on everything that we just said right now. My approach to communication is having an audience-centered approach. And right now the audience is you listening to this podcast. And I hope that you were able to take away something that will encourage a new conversation, inspire new thought, or encourage you to take a different step or approach that maybe you wouldn't have before. Thank you all so much for tuning in and we will see you next week. Thank you.